0: With that, I'd like to go ahead and invite Alex up, and uh, he's going to be reading the scripture passage for us this morning in German.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Acts, verses 1 through 6. Okay, Is that, is that a little better? Okay. <laughs> uh, first in German and then in English. In dieser Zeit wuchs die Gemeinde rasch. Dabei kam es zu Spannungen zwischen den einheimischen Juden mit hebräischer Muttersprache und denen, die aus dem Ausland zugezogen waren und Griechisch sprachen. Die griechisch sprechenden Juden beklagten sich darüber, dass ihre Witwen bei der täglichen Versorgung benachteiligt würden. Deshalb riefen die zwölf Apostel die ganze Gemeinde zusammen. Es ist nicht richtig, sagten sie, wenn wir Lebensmittel verteilen müssen, statt Gottes Botschaft zu verkünden. Darum, liebe Brüder und Schwestern, sucht in der Gemeinde nach sieben Männern mit gutem Ruf, die ihr Leben ganz vom Heiligen Geist bestimmen lassen und sich durch ihre Weisheit auszeichnen. Ihnen werden wir diese Aufgabe übertragen. Wir selbst aber wollen nach wie vor unsere ganze Kraft dafür einsetzen, zu beten und Gottes Botschaft zu verkünden. Mit diesem Vorschlag waren alle einverstanden. Sie wählten Stephanus, einen Mann mit festem Glauben und erfüllt mit dem Heiligen Geist. Außerdem Philippus, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas und Nikolaus von Antiochia. Dieser war früher einmal zum jüdischen Glauben übergetreten. Diese sieben Männer wurden vor die Apostel gestellt, die für sie beteten und ihnen die Hände auflegten, um ihnen diese Aufgabe zu übertragen. Die Botschaft Gottes aber wurde immer mehr Menschen verkündet, Vor allem in Jerusalem nahm die Zahl der Gläubigen stark zu. Unter ihnen waren viele jüdische Priester, die auf Gott gehört und zum an Jesus gefunden hatten. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the Twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said. and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of these priests became obedient to the faith.
0: Thanks, Alex. Morning, church family. Good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Aaron, if you're new. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's been such a joy to have uh, the various scripture readings done in a lot of different languages as a testimony to this this book of Acts where the gospel is going out to all the nations of the world. Uh, and I was even thinking, um, I don't know if those of you who are watching on the live stream can hear it, but the birds have decided to join in. And I blame, I fully blame Pete for reading the scripture about call to worship, like all creation, sing with us. And. They were like, for sure. I can't help but think in the month of October that it's some sort of like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds just waiting to happen, but we'll keep our eyes out for that. We'll start a prayer circle in the back. Uh, I'll fix that for the 11 o'clock service. We're in the book of Acts, chapter six. If you got your Bibles, I'll invite you to open there, read along. We're gonna be in a little bit of a shorter passage than than last week. You know, this this is um, kind of an important transitional section in the book of Acts, you know, the the book of Acts follows this very intentional pattern where the good news about Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah, it starts in Jerusalem, and then it spreads to the surrounding regions in Judea, and then it goes out of Judea to Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And we're now kind of in the wrapping up the Judea section. Chapters 6 and 7 are wrapping up the Judea section, and chapter 8... Uh, Philip is going to be the first one to take this gospel message into Samaria, and then after that, to the ends of the earth under the leadership of Saul, also known as Paul. And so this is an important section, and it's a little bit less, uh, let's say, dramatic than some of the passages I've had the privilege of preaching on the last few weeks. It's a little less dramatic, um, but it's of of incredible practical importance, and I'm really excited to share a few things uh, that the Lord's put on my heart. So will you pray with me before we dive in here? God, we thank you that we get to be a church family. And we do thank you, even as we just heard the testimony from our sister, Jen, uh, who serves so faithfully. And, and God, just the, the, the idea that you care not only about these big cosmic things, the, the rulers and authorities over this present age, and, and Lord Jesus, that you're the king of the whole world and all nations have to bow down before you. But Lord, you care about details. You care about little things in our lives, And I thank you for that testimony we heard, and I thank you for how we see that lived out here in Acts chapter 6. And so for myself, God, I pray that you would guard my lips and you would direct my speech, that I only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And would you give each and every single one of us receptive hearts today, receptive hearts to hear from you, to grow in grace. We pray this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You know if you have spent any time around church at all, I mean, I grew up in the church, and I can just remember almost constantly hearing things like, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could go back like the early church? We ought to be more like the early church, and, you know, we got to be be like the, the early church. And I, I don't remember exactly how old I was. Somewhere in high school, I remember being like, I've, I've read the Bible a few times now. Have you read about the early church and uh, you know, these last few weeks, we have gotten kind of the the most positive, the most optimistic picture of the early church, particularly in Acts chapter two. Pastor Shane preached on the, the passage at the end of Acts chapter two, where they're they're all living their lives together and they're sharing their possessions, and and they're they're seeing you know converts made every single day. And then you know, you get into Acts three and four. Yeah, there's a little bit of, of opposition from the leaders, but ultimately Jesus keeps saving people, and the Apostle Peter's shadow is passing over people, and they're getting healed, and yeah, they get in prison, but an angel shows up and releases them, and in and, and Acts chapter 5, yeah, I mean, there were some people that, I mean, they stole, and they lied to the leaders or whatever, but it's cool. God killed them, and, and the church is doing just fine, and you know, right? It's like this kind of rosy sort of picture oftentimes, and, and, and if you really stop and, and kind of pay attention, yes, the Lord was doing incredible things in and through this first generation of followers of Jesus. But can I share with you that this church community had problems? And today, in Acts chapter 6, they had organizational problems. My favorite, right? Like, you know, when I was a young man and I felt like the Lord was, you know, calling me to get into ministry, I was like, you know, I cannot wait, cannot wait to do spreadsheets and file paperwork with the state of Washington about non I cannot wait, right, John? I cannot wait to do a thousand emails back and forth about renting a canopy. I cannot wait. Like, this is the kind of stuff, you know, when you think about ministry, think about public ministry, I think a lot of people and a lot of pastors have in their mind, you know, they're going to be the next Billy Graham preaching in front of crusades and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, that most of ministry, what we call ministry, is mostly small, overlooked, behind-the-scenes sort of tasks that have real ramifications in the life of people. And there's the metaphor of church as a family, right? And for those of you who, you know, you don't serve in vocational ministry maybe, uh, please hear me on this. There is plenty for you in this passage. But think about the church as a family, right? There are times where you have a family night, and it's like, you know, you watch a movie and you play a game and somebody made a really good dinner. And then like in my household, I don't know why, I don't know if anybody else has this affliction, but like spontaneous dance parties break out in my house from time to time. Ashley knows what I'm talking about. You've been there for some, you've probably caused some of them. Thank you, Ashley. But like it's dance parties break out. I was like, that was just such an amazing family night. And then there's other times where nobody's hungry and there's a fight that's happening and somebody left a Lego sitting out and Someone stepped on it and lost their temper about it. And not naming names, but it was me. And, you know, like there's kind of, there's, there's these differences where, where <clears throat> you know, we want to come together and have kind of this picture of perfection. But the reality is, is the Lord gives us these opportunities in, in day-to-day sorts of opportunities to really practice loving and serving each other. So that's the big idea of this passage. The big idea for today is this. As we serve the family of God— we get to enjoy and display the love of Christ as we serve each other we both get to enjoy we get to receive the love of God and we get to display it we get to share it with somebody else so pick up with me in acts chapter 6 verse 1 it says this it says in those days the disciples were increasing in number as the disciples were increasing in number there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Okay, so the daily distribution literally means, like, meal trains, a food pantry. There are people who are economically uh, experiencing hardship and depression, and the the community of faith, these followers of Jesus, took it upon themselves to say, we're going to make sure that people have food, particularly Widows, particularly in a culture where women did not have rights of property ownership unless you were a wealthy of the, of the aristocratic class, women had very few options to provide for themselves. And so the community of faith did something that was radical. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, social safety nets. There's no uh, food stamps. There's none of those kinds of things. They, they had to have this mentality: it's us or nothing. Now there are two different groups among the widows. There are the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. All of them ethnically Jewish, but the Hebraic Jews are the ones that would have spoken the language of Hebrew or probably more likely the language of Aramaic. They would have spoken a language that was the native tongue to the the the, the Judean soil whereas the Hellenistic, Helen is actually the name for Greece, and, and that means they would have been Greek-speaking. Maybe they grew up outside of Israel, and they spoke a different language. And would you believe, try to imagine a world in which there was tension between different people groups around, you know, ethnicity and language and things like that. <laughs> They're actually most likely, many scholars would, would, would believe that the the pressure the 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 looking down on the nose would have come from the hebraic jewish women on the hellenistic you're you're a greek speaker you're you're not from among us you didn't grow up around here and there would have been a little bit of a uh, a snobbery and so these hellenistic jews are complaining hey our widows are getting overlooked these women are getting missed in the daily distribution of food somebody messed up the excel spreadsheet I mean, it really is as simple as that. We get no indication from the text that there is some sort of malice or intentionality. It really is just like, oh, shoot. This, is, this isn't something that's happened where people are being overlooked. So verse two, the apostles, the 12, summoned the whole company of the disciples. This larger group, I don't know if it's the thousands and thousands who have called on the name of the Lord, or maybe it's the more kind of inner circle of those who have been around and leading since the the, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. But they gathered a big group and they said, look, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Now, you got to hear Don't don't hear that negatively. Don't hear that negatively, like, oh, just to wait on tables. They're saying this is an important function. This is something that needs to happen. They obviously believe that it was an important thing to do because there was daily distribution of food in the church community. Don't hear it negatively because look at at the the top-shelf people that they're about to select. This has less to do with the importance of the work and more to do with the gifting and the calling on those who are serving and leading. Brothers and sisters, select from among you Seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So I just want to pause for a second here, because this is some good leadership from the apostles. I want you to notice six things from what they do here, okay? And I'm I'm just going to talk about this good leadership in six ways. Good leaders do six things. Number one, good leaders don't do everything perfectly. Okay? Again, we we don't want to have some overly rosy picture. This is a pretty remarkable, a pretty unique time in the history of the Jesus movement— right this is the first time that this this you know it's the first time that anyone has ever come and fulfilled all scriptures lived died risen again and empowered a, a group of people to go out and share the message this is a unique time and even as uniquely gifted as they are again peter's shadow and all that sort of stuff they don't do everything perfectly there's only one person who has ever lived who has been perfect and his name is jesus christ so these good leaders they don't get everything right but number 2 we can see that good leaders work in teams said they summoned the whole 12 together. And actually, they summoned the whole council of disciples together. Again, we don't know exactly what that number is, but there's this impulse among this leadership team to say, we need a team of people. We need teamwork, right? Teamwork is going to be what will serve the church community best. Number three, good leaders take responsibility. Now, if anyone would have had the right to say, well, I didn't do this, not my fault. It would be the Apostle Peter. Am I right? Oh, I'm sorry, we missed the food distribution? I don't I've been locked in prison. One time an angel came, but the other time I got beaten with a stick. I'm sorry you didn't get your food, right? Have you seen my shadow passing over people? Did you hear that sermon I preached when I when, when like 3,000 people got added to the, like if anybody could have dug their heels in and made excuses it would have been peter and john and by extension the rest of the 12 but that's not what they do they say oh there's a problem let's fix this let's tackle this man i'm so sorry let's let's put together a plan and let's make this happen good leaders take responsibility even for things that aren't directly their fault number 4 good leaders address both spiritual and physical needs Both and. I've talked about this before, but in the broader Christian world, there can be a, a subset of Christians that really like to focus on serving the poor and making sandwiches for homeless people and like the kind of the, the, the ground game, if you, were, if you will. And there are others who are like, well, we just need to preach the gospel and only, only talk about you know, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That is an absolutely false dichotomy, and we are, uh, we are uh, firmly committed as a church to a both-and type of experience as church. Amen? Good leaders care for the spiritual needs of the church and the practical needs of the church. Ministry of the word and prayer, you know, takethemameal.com, right? It It is a both and sort of a thing. Number five, good leaders know where to devote their energy, their focus, their time. A good leader will say, hey, look, if I say yes to this one thing, it means I'm probably gonna have to say no to some other things, I don't know if there are show of hands. Anybody find it hard sometimes to say no to things? Anybody? Okay. These leaders, again, they're not denigrating the distribution of the food, but they're simply saying, this is not what God has called us to do. This is not the primary and best use of our time. We got to find some people for whom it would be the best use of their time. And then number six, good leaders empower other leaders. They said, we've got to find some people to whom we will appoint this duty. These apostles have the authority. They've got the authority in the community of faith. They walked with the Lord. They were there on the mountain when, when the voice called out, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, they have all the authority in this community of faith, and yet they are saying, we want to divest ourselves of this authority and raise up and empower others to lead and to serve in this way. Now, this These principles obviously have application in our church, do they not? They obviously have application in our church. But I also want you to take this. Th- these principles are, are, in a secondary way, they're applicable to all sorts of different leadership contexts. For some of you, the main area of leadership that you have is, you're simply, you're a parent. As a parent, don't... Don't you want to work with a team of people to love and serve your kid? Not only your, your spouse, but your extended family and even the, the children's ministry leaders from our church. Like it's a teamwork sort of thing, right? Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to take responsibility? Yesterday, uh, one of my children spilled a can of LaCroix and thank goodness it wasn't something sugary that would be sticky, but it's like, well, one of us parents has to go clean it up. I didn't do it. You clean it up. No, I, I'm the parent. I got to go help, at least give instruction and teaching, right? Uh, you know, addressing both the spiritual and the practical, the physical needs. Empowering others, knowing where to focus our energy, right? Like for, for some of you, you're a supervisor at work. You're a teacher in a classroom or a Zoom classroom, Right? You have some sort of a position of authority and we can learn by extension what God was doing in this community of faith. We can learn some really practical things, some really practical principles that we can apply in a wide sphere of areas. Continuing on, verse five. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Pumbaa. No, Timon, Parmenas. Just try to sneak those things in. See if anybody catches them. There's fewer kids in the room now than there once were. So. And Nicholas. That was the one, Alex, from your scripture reading. I understood that word. Nicholas. I got that one. Saint Nicholas. A convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Interesting few things here. First of all, these are the right men for the job. Uh, I I like that it says, particularly for Stephen, but for all of them, these are men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're well-respected by the company of believers. These are not people who are like, well, we're just going to get some stuff done kind of people. These are people who others look to for care and for leadership. I like that these are these are all non-Jewish names. Non-Jewish names. Who was being overlooked in the distribution of the food? Non-Jewish or I shouldn't say non-Jewish but Hellenistic Jewish women. We don't know if maybe all seven of these men were themselves Hellenistic Jews. We see that Nicholas is a convert from Antioch so maybe he's a Gentile. Maybe he's a Jewish man who grew up in Antioch and and got saved outside of the city of Jerusalem. We don't know all of the details but I just find it particularly uh, interesting that it's these Hellenistic women are being overlooked so they pick seven men with Hellenistic names to go serve them. That seems like kindness, doesn't it? like an over and above graciousness to serve them. And I like that there's a split. In the book of Acts, we're about to devote the next few chapters, the next almost exclusively two chapters, to Stephen, who is known as the first martyr, the first one to give his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in a couple of Sundays. And then we get Philip. Philip, who shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's it's one of Myung's favorite Bible stories because Philip seemingly teleports away at the end of that. You can talk to Myung after the service. He's got some crazy ideas. I commend you to him. But the other guys, whatever whatever happens to Nicanor, whatever happens to Timon, we don't ever really hear from them. We don't really ever hear from them. Some of these guys get notoriety. Some of them just kind of fade into the background and do their job and serve the church without a lot of fanfare. We may not know what they did, but I'll tell you what, the Lord Jesus knows and those sisters in Jerusalem know. The result, verse seven, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And that's particularly interesting because, again, they have been opposed so much by the religious leaders. But here, this comment, that a lot of priests became obedient to the faith because of these acts of service and caring for people. Now, if you'll allow me an excursus for a minute, this passage is often referred to as the selection of the first deacons in the church. You guys heard that word before, deacons? It's one of two official offices of church leader that are called out in the pages of the New Testament. You have overseer and elder. Those terms are used synonymously. And you have deacon or servant or minister. It's sometimes translated. Sometimes people object that the word deacon isn't found in this passage. It's not explicitly referred to, except for in verse two, when it says to wait on tables or to serve tables, it is the verb form. It's diakoneo. it It is present there. And based on that textual connection as well as the thematic connections with places like 1 Timothy 3, I believe we're on solid footing to say, yes, this is, this is a paradigm. This is an example of the selection of deacons. And deacons, is not something that we just, you know, wake up on a Sunday morning like, let's talk about deacons today. But this is why we love going through books of the Bible because it, it makes us stop and, and to examine and to look at things. So if you'll allow me just a few minutes to talk about Deacons, the the word, Greek word, diakonos, it is most often translated as servant. So it can just mean servant in the more general sense. In uh, various translations, CSB, ESB, it's often translated as minister. It can also be translated as an attendant, like a a royal court, someone who kind of attends to that royalty. And then lastly, sometimes the translations just leave it untranslated and just leave it as deacon. Translations, the the people who do our English translations have to make a judgment call based on context, how they want to, to translate it. But the baseline meaning is just simply that of a servant. A servant. Uh... How many of you have been out to eat at a restaurant, let's say, in the last month? Raise your hand, okay? It's a good number of you. Do you realize that that experience is something that for the vast majority of human history was reserved for royalty? You have servants in the back cooking your food. They bring it out to you on a COVID-safe platter and they, they serve it to you would you like a refill on that sweet tea? Whatever it might be. And they're, they're waiting on you. They're serving you. Oh, well, I paid them money. Well, yeah. The kings had to pay people money too. That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing that we live in a culture where, with that kind of widespread access to what used to only be reserved for royalty. So think of a deacon as a servant, I mean, even in the context of this passage, waiting on tables. Number two, the biblical picture of deacon includes that it is a formal office of church leadership. I, I like in Philippians 1, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, he says, to the overseers and to the deacons, Paul and, and Timothy, and he writes this letter to them. We see that it's one of two recognized offices in the church. Now, quick question, pop quiz. How many Christians are supposed to serve? All of them, right? But what we're talking about is kind of a special uh, a position of leadership, a recognized position of leadership where we say, Man, they're really good at serving and they can help lead others in serving. Similar to an overseer or an elder. Who, is supposed to, who, who among the believers is supposed to teach the word of God? Every single believer. But there are some with a recognized gift who, uh, of leadership to serve in that office of overseer. Number three, deacons are focused more on practical matters. I referenced 1 Timothy 3. If you look at 1 Timothy, there's a section on overseers and there's a section on deacons. The requirements are actually largely the same, like 90% overlap. The main difference is that overseers or elders must be able to teach, and it does not say that about deacons. Instead, for deacons, it says they must not be greedy for money. Overseers are not to be greedy also, but deacons specifically, it calls out money which lends some credibility to the idea that a lot of these early deacons in the church would probably handle practical matters, the finances of the church, distribution of food. Again, practical matters. Those things that if someone doesn't do them well, people get left feeling hurt or disappointed. And then number four, both men and women serve as deacons. This passage in 1 Timothy talks about um, elders or overseers, and based on some of the language in 1 Timothy 2, as well as things in 1 Timothy 3, uh, my and our best understanding of that passage is that this role of an overseer is something that God intends to be fulfilled by men only. But when you get to the topic of deacons, there's a few interesting things that happen. First, in the deacon's section in 1 Timothy 3, if you look in your translation, they almost certainly say the wives. But that again was a translation decision. The word in the Greek is gynekos. It can mean woman or wife, depending on the translation. And it seems really, really weird to have a requirement, if you're serving as a deacon, to put a requirement on your wife, whereas for an overseer and elder, there is no such requirement upon the spouse. Textually, I think the thing that makes the most sense is Paul goes, oh yeah, and the women, the women deacons as well. Here's some things specific for, for women deacons. And he comes back, for the men deacons, some specific things to think about. It just, it just seems extremely unlikely that there would be a requirement for the wife of a deacon, but not for an overseer. My second reason, though, to say this is if you look in Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, the very end of the letter to the Romans, do you know who carried and delivered the letter to the church in Rome? A woman named Phoebe. Here's how uh, the CSB translates it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in centre. That word servant, guess what it is in the Greek? It's deacon. Now this translation says servant. They could have put minister. They could have put attendant, but listen to what Paul says. You should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her, assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. So I think that the text there is she's not just, oh, she's like the best servant. She's actually in some sort of a leadership capacity, where Paul is saying, you need to help her. You need to assist her. Reason number three is just the early church witness. And once you get uh, past the era of the book of Acts and the New Testament writings, you can see, I mean, just boatloads of examples of women, deacons, women ministers, women in leadership in the community of faith. I belabor this point because it's somehow turned into some sort of controversial thing. And I frankly just don't think it should be. The church is, (laughs) Let let me, well, I'm I'm trying to choose my words carefully. (laughs) When you have practical matters in the church that need to be attended to, I personally have been extremely benefited by many uh, uh, sharp-minded and faithful women who have served not only me personally, our church community, it seems like an incredibly uh, uh, powerful Just normal and natural thing if we want to think of the church as a family to have women serving in that sort of a leadership role. I've put more resources up on the website. If you want to argue with me, my email address is now john at (laughs) soundcitybiblechurch.com. Give Shane a break for the month of October here. Here's the point. Here's the point. Deacons are a vital part of a healthy church. They serve the practical needs of the church. They assist the overseers and the, the elders by enabling them to focus on the word and to focus on prayer. And they inspire all the rest of us to serve. Again, all of us are supposed to serve. And, and when they do that well, ultimately, they show us the character of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the number one servant at Sound City Bible Church and in every other church that calls upon the name of the Lord. Think about the story in Matthew chapter 20. You know, James and John, John, who's now doing amazing things like getting set free from prison by an angel, John and James went to Jesus. No, 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 they didn't even go to Jesus. Their mama went to Jesus to ask that they could have really important positions in his Messiah cabinet, if you will. They sit at your left hand and your right hand. And what does Jesus do? Jesus calls them to himself and he says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. But to deacon is the word. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, over the last few weeks, we've had an opportunity to look at the fact that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Right now, there's a lot of different politicians trying to court your vote. But none of them, despite their promises, none of them has ever served you the way that our king Jesus has. None of them have ever taken off their outer garment and gotten down and washed your feet. None of them have ever stood before a mock trial in front of the religious leaders. None of them have had a crown of thorns put on their scalp. None of them have had nails driven through their hands and their feet while the wrath of God for sin was poured out upon them. None of them rose from the dead for you. Friends, it is only Jesus Christ who now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us day and night like we just sang about before the throne of God above in the true heavenly tabernacle in the true holy of holies he is constantly still serving us even right now this is our Jesus I used this language earlier this week and and I think I like it I'm going to stick with it you know maybe some of you have heard the language of you know Jesus is the senior pastor of the church well in addition to that Jesus is the lead deacon of our church there is no one who serves our church more than Jesus Christ. Jesus cares for both our, our physical and spiritual needs. Jesus, Jesus rallies together teams of people to, to love and serve and lead our church. Jesus. During his earthly life he he knew where to focus his energy and where to focus his attention. Jesus empowered others. Jesus took responsibility for all of our sin, which in case you were wondering, 0% of it was his fault. Jesus is the lead deacon of the church. And so let me let me just close by relating this in a few ways. To us, I want to relate this corporately to our church and then to you individually briefly. How how does this relate to our church collectively? Three things. Number one, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate those deacons in our midst who serve well. And actually, frankly, we just need to celebrate God has really blessed our church with a culture of service. I regularly get texts. I regularly get emails, especially in this season where we've got work going on in the building and things like that. People going, man, what can I do to help? I literally got a text from someone. Who's like, hey, I'm working from home, but I got a lot of flexibility. You guys need any help? I'm like, yeah, so much help is needed. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I'm so thankful, Sound City Bible Church, that God has helped us to be the kind of church that serves well. And I'm so thankful for the deacons that we do have. I, I'm, gonna read, I'm gonna read their names. Uh, maybe a little more than half of them are here right now. Alejandro, back there. You can't hide behind the mask. I see you. Uh, Brittany. Where's Brittany? She's not here? She's serving somewhere. Okay. Brittany Hackett. Myung. Right there. Yeah. We love you. Dale. I know Dale's here. Where are you, Deacon Deacon Dale? Yeah. The mayor. Jim Luguchik and Shelly Luguchik. Where are they at? Kids. They're serving in kids. They're like the Priscilla and Aquila of our church community. It's kind of a two-for-one deal. Stephanie Patrick, I see you back there taking pictures. Are you the deacon of photography now? It's good. Uh, Chris Vaughn, probably coming to the next service. He's been regular at the 11. Is he here? And then our own Pete Wilson, helping lead music and serve uh, that way too. We love you, Pete. We need to celebrate not just them, but again, faithful volunteers and faithful servants. We got a guy... Tom Jacobson, who's been showing up just like multiple, three, four times a week to help do everything from literally, he has been mowing the grass and helping pull cabling for, you know, internet inside the building. That's a servant hearted individual. So many of you. There's too many to name. We need to celebrate. Number two, we need to cultivate. I know that these rhyme, and you're going to really love the third one. But (laughs) we need to cultivate. Even though I would say, by God's grace, this is a strength of our church community, there is always room to grow. There's kind of the unfortunate joke, and it's not just in church, it's in businesses and other organizations as well that that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. Some of you are just kind of hanging on the edges and you need to find ways to get involved. No shame, no guilt, no browbeating. Look at how Jesus has served us. Look at what he's doing in and through our church family. Let's join together and serve each other in love, okay? Some of you are called to uh, an official office of deacon or, or maybe even for some of you an office of overseer. We need to do a better job as a church of cultivating that more widely. And then number three, I use the word separate because I used the word bifurcate and I got in trouble. So I don't use that word anymore. Here's the, here's the idea for this. We need to grow and particularly the elders need to do a better job of getting out of the weeds sometimes. And I will put myself as chief among them. And I'm mentioning this publicly so that you, our broader church community, can help hold us accountable. I, in particular, was convicted afresh by the passage when the, elder, the apostles said, hey, we need to focus on the ministry of prayer and the teaching of the word, and we need to find other people to help serve in these practical matters. And in my life, I've been a deacon, I've been a worship director, I've served in a lot of different roles. It's really easy for me to get down into the details and down into the weeds, and the Lord has been convicting me, and I think I can speak broadly for our elder team that we need to learn how to, to lead in some different sorts of ways. And so, church community, I, I, I ask you for your Loving support and your loving accountability in that. Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay. Lastly, for you personally, for you personally, let me close with this. How is God calling you to serve? Just because someone else is serving in a different role or just because you see someone doing a certain thing does not necessarily mean that you are called to serve in that way. This was a unique opportunity. This was a unique need. And the Lord raised up some unique individuals to lead and to serve in that way. How is God calling you to serve? Maybe more on the nose. Who is God calling you to serve? stereotypical, you know, husbands, you driving home from work as you're driving home from work and you're getting ready to, you know, if you, if you do go to your office or whatever and you're coming home from a long day, is all you're thinking about, boy, I hope my wife's made me a good meal and I hope the house is clean? Or are you driving home with a mentality of I'm here to serve my family? And that can apply in a million other ways. How are you, Preparing your heart to serve those around you. And you know where it starts? Do you know where it starts? It doesn't start with you whipping yourself up into a frenzy. It starts when you realize that Jesus is constantly serving you. You know what's interesting about a gathering like this? We often call it a worship service. Who is serving whom? Or whatever the grammar works out like. Who's doing the serving? Are the church staff serving all of you, the people in attendance? Eh, wrong. We're all here to serve the Lord, but the Lord is here to serve us as well. And even in a moment here, as we go to the Lord's table and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, let's remember that at that meal, the Lord Jesus is serving us. He's serving us his broken body and his shed blood. And as we sing and as we worship, the Lord is serving his grace to us. If you want to serve, if you want to be able to serve others, you have to receive the service of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow as servants. And not because of our own great willpower and and attitude and all that sort of stuff, Lord, but just from the simple recognition that you are always and constantly serving us in love. Lord, I thank you for this church community and the culture of service that already does exist. And I pray you'd help us to grow and to cultivate more leaders and more, more servants. Lord, even in this season of, of a lot of busyness with practical needs and moving into the building and getting ready to, to, to have all of that done. Lord, would you just help us to serve each other in love? Help us to serve our community, the, those in need around us with the grace that we have been shown. We give this time to you now, even as we come to the table, help us to eat and drink your loving service even into our very souls. Now we pray in Jesus' name, amen.